0: I want to just mention a couple of things as the kids head out this morning. Um, I want to mention, not this Monday, because it's Labor Day. By the way, you all are the holy ones who show up on Labor Day, or you're the ones who just didn't travel. Um, and so we're glad you're here too. But I um, was thinking about how this, starting the 12th, that Monday through the 16th, that Monday through Friday, from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. each night of the week, we're gathering for one hour to pray. And so I'd say if this church is your home, I would encourage you to set aside, if you can't make it every night, we get that. But if you can make it five nights, or four nights, or three nights to come. So here's what we'll do each night, just so you kind of know the rhythm of that, because it, it freaks some people out. They hear that they might have to pray for an hour, and they go, oh, not me. Um, but it's about five minutes, six minutes. There's a couple songs we sing together, and then there's a brief devotional, and then there's 25 or so minutes of guided prayer time. We pray on your own. You have things to pray for. In fact, in the foyer, there's an area that if you have prayer requests, We'd encourage you to write them down and others will pray for them. We'll place them on the altar and people pray for them each night. But we just say, if there are things you want to pray for, submit them, but come and be a part. And then we'll finish with uh, usually kind of one song together and then a corporate act of prayer. Um, One hour, on the nose, every time. Um, If you've never done it, I'd encourage you to come. If this church is your home, I'd encourage you to come. Um, So that starts next Monday, but next Sunday begins a men's study that's on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. And some of your young dads are like, oh, "I've got to put my kids to bed." Well, that's why it's late. So we hope we'll see you at 8 o'clock. So we hope you'll come and be a part next Sunday. I'll be going through a study called Live No Lies, and I think you'll find it's worth your time. And so that's beginning next Sunday for four weeks. And so we hope you'll be a part of that. And then want to mention, today we begin a new series, which is always like a, an iffy thing. We're talking about the book of Revelation for the next 12 weeks. And um, if you just want to have a conversation about what we talked about the week before, the week after, so beginning next Sunday morning at 9.15 in the conference room outside the office, uh, we'll just meet and talk about what we talked about the week before. So if you felt like you had questions you want to write down, uh, you can do that. And then because we felt like sometimes people have lots of questions, um, we have this nice little handout that's front and back. So this is just kind of a general overview of some helpful things for the book of Revelation. And then each week we'll have notes for you front and back. Those are also available in the foyer. Uh, If the one that looks pretty, that's because Holly saw what I had for you and she redid it. And she felt like it wasn't pretty enough, and so she said, we can't give that to people like that. It's just too many words, and she said, we're going to change this. So if you like the way it looks, you can thank her. If you don't, you can blame her. Um, The content, I will take credit for one way or the other, so that goes to me. But we begin this series beginning this day. I know it's weird to begin on Labor Day, right? Why would you do that? I don't know, because when I looked at a calendar, it made sense. we're talking about this book, this unique book in the Bible. It's the last book of the Bible. Martin Luther literally said you should just get rid of it and take it out of the Bible. Like that was his hope that we would not use it. It'd be gone and erased and not used. And he's not the only one in church history who has thought that, right? Most people look at it and it like freaks them out and they're scared. and all kinds of things go through their mind. And so I got to be honest with you, when I was a kid, I had this fascination with what we'll call um, eschatology or study of last things. I had this kind of fascination. I was mesmerized by it. I was like, kind of freaked out a little bit too. Um, I read this book series called Left Behind. I don't actually encourage you to read it, because um, you, unless you recognize it is fiction. If you get that, then it's cool. But if you think it's like the Bible, that's a problem. So that's where I was as a, as a teenager. I began to read this stuff and kind of was enthralled by it. And so I kept trying to figure out, I wonder if this is this person in the Bible or that person. And all these weird things I started doing. And then I began to recognize as I studied more and as I got older and began to read not just that singular book, or I began to read books and began to understand the church history, I began to go, huh, I think maybe I'm missing something here. And some things begin to make more sense over time. So we're hoping over these next 12 weeks, some things will begin to make more sense. And so as we read this particular letter, it might be helpful for us to think in these terms. Think more art, like pictures, thoughts, rather than science. Like these have to all line up in this way. If we'll read the book from that perspective, what we might find is it begins to make more sense over time. Right, like I love one of the quotes of William Barclay. He says that Revelation either finds a man mad or leaves him so. Right? like We sometimes read this book and it freaks us out. And I do want to say this. I, I think it's important we recognize that beginning in Revelation chapter 1, it's the revelation of Jesus to his followers as good news. It's not some satanic book that's to freak people out. It was good news to the first century church, and it should probably be good news to us as well. So you're like, well, what do we do with that, right? Well, maybe this is helpful. We're reading what is called Jewish apocalyptic literature. It's where you paint all these grand, grand pictures to try to tell a story. And you're not really, the pictures are not really literal, but they're painting a picture of what God is at work doing. And so we talk about a prophetic word. and I don't want to talk about what prophetic means in terms of scripture. Right? Some people say, I have a prophetic word for you today. Almost always in the Bible, prophetic doesn't mean future telling, It means truth-telling. Not like far-out reality, but truth-telling and what that means, right? And so here's what I would say that's a helpful thing for us, even in our day, because someone goes, well, who's a prophet? What's a false prophet? And all kinds of things, right? Even in our current culture, a false prophet, by definition, is someone who says God will do something, and it doesn't happen, and the Bible literally says, if someone says this is going to happen on this and such day, and this is such and such time, and it doesn't happen, you are to not listen to them any longer. It's actually incredibly clear about that. So we talk about this particular book, and people say, well, the world's going to end on this day. Anyone who says that, I would encourage you to not listen to any longer. Because that literally is the definition of Scripture, a false teaching. And so what is the point of the book of Revelation. Why did John write this on an island stranded, exiled? Whether it was the Apostle John or another John, we're not 100% sure. But either way, he was stranded on an island. Why? Because he had been trying to live faithfully in a culture that didn't embrace who God was. But here's the challenge for you and I. We, too, are called to live faithfully in whatever culture it is, because whatever culture in human history doesn't ever seem to be embraced by who God calls us to be. And so how do we live faithfully in a world that doesn't live faithfully to Jesus? That's the question the first century church would task with. It's also the question for you and I. You go, how can you say that with any kind of conviction? Well, what if I just painted a quick picture, right? Talk about painting pictures. In Matthew chapter 4 is the scene of the temptation of Jesus. Jesus taken in the wilderness, right? He's been fasting and he's been praying and we often think he's super weak in the moment, maybe, but maybe he's also spiritually so strong in the moment that he's even able to overcome temptation. But we talk about as the temptation of Christ, why? Because he was actually tempted. So it means that what the devil offered him was a literal temptation because if it wasn't, we wouldn't say the temptation of Jesus. We'd say some dude offered something that he didn't like and he's like, nah, I'm good. Now we call it the temptation of Jesus. So he was led into the wilderness and he was tempted. And so here's what Matthew records. He says this Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Right? I want to be clear. You're like, well, okay, I thought we were talking about Revelation. You're talking about Matthew. I'm kind of confused. But if we look at this picture, what we see here is this. The devil offers Jesus what is his to give. He can't offer what's not his, right? It's not a temptation. If I offer you something and I don't own it, if it's not mine, you're not really tempted by it, right? Because you're like, well, if I said, hey, I'm going to give you a brand new Mercedes-Benz. You're going to go, you don't have one. You can't afford one. So you didn't give me one. Like that's not a temptation because I know it's not true. So some temptation if you can't offer what's not yours. As the devil offers Jesus, says, all the kingdoms of the world are mine. You catch this? All the kingdoms of the world are mine, and I'll give it to you if you want it. And so in Scripture we often talk about the kingdoms of the world. We use a phrase often we use empire. Right in the Book of Revelation we'll use. Babylon to signify Rome, and we can continue all throughout human history, right? What we find over and over again is empire or kingdoms end up being corrupt and broken, and they don't represent the kingdom of God. And so here's a way that might be helpful for us to define this. Empire is the name given to the spiritual or social nature of a nation, culture, or political entity that overtly and covertly pervades every area of the lives of those living within it, conforming those persons to the shared values, identities, and convictions of the ruling powers. This brings us to the book of Revelation. Throughout the book, it talks about Babylon, and you could substitute Rome, and they would be the same thing so the writer is writing to the first century church about the empire in which they live rome and so why is rome this threat to the christian faith at some level right why are they concerned by this why are they persecuted why are these things and there are some things about the spiritual embodiment of rome right they they worship what they say is the goddess of roma r-o-m-a and so what were the things that came with that well Rome offered some things of great things, right? They offered the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. Now, it was brought by a sword, but it was still peace. It brought wealth and prosperity. Roads were cleared. They were paved. You could go safely. Mail showed up on time. You get fame and prestige because you're part of a great empire. We could argue the greatest empire that's ever existed, a thousand years, right? It's pretty impressive. But Rome is embodied as one more empire throughout all the scripture, whether it was Rome or Egypt or Syria or Persia or what the writer of Revelation uses, Babylon. Now, why is Babylon so interesting? Right? We could talk about Egypt. You were slaves. No one was really tempted to want to be a slave, right? That's not that tempting. If I enslave you, that's not a temptation in your life. But Babylon was unique when we look back in the Old Testament scriptures. Babylon, they didn't try to like woo you with their power, although they were powerful. They, you, I mean, you were a slave to them in some semblance, right? But instead, they would try to make their culture so appealing that you wanted to live like a Babylonian, right? Because you could to find their food and their music and their art and their culture it was so great, you just want to be Babylonian. And so the temptation wasn't that they were going to enslave you and you'd want to become a slave, the temptation is you'd be so wooed by the culture of the day, by the culture of the empire, that you would live like a Babylonian. You're like, well, that doesn't sound all bad. Unless you were Jewish, and you were the one of the people who had been overthrown. And so as a Jewish parent, your greatest fear would not be that your children would not who, know who Yahweh or who God was. Your greatest fear would be that your children would be so wooed by Babylon that they wouldn't know who God was. That they would look just like the culture in which they lived. So I was trying to think, how would I say that to you in a 21st century context? See, my greatest fear for my children is not that they become healthy, wealthy, and wise. My greatest fear for my children is that God might call them, but they won't recognize his voice, because they've been shaped by so many other things. My greatest fear is that God might call them to go to do something hard or difficult or foreign, and because it sounds hard or foreign or difficult, they not listen. See, my greatest fear as a parent, as much as it's going to sound surprising to some of you, my greatest fear as a parent is not that my children will die. It's not. It's a big one, like, don't get me wrong. But my greatest fear as a parent is that when God calls and sends them someplace to go to the other side, to get in a boat and go somewhere, that they won't do it. That's my greatest fear as a parent. That the lure of Babylon or our culture, or whatever it might be, would so lure them in that they would find themselves not willing to go where God is calling. And so that's part of what the writer of Revelation is writing to the first century church. Are you so shaped by this culture, by this empire, by the place where you live, that you've missed who God might actually be? And so in the midst of persecution and chaos and all these things, are you still going to stay faithful to who God is? And that brings us to Revelation chapter 1. Here's what we find, beginning with verse 8. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, And I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters." In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Like I said, painting pictures, art, not science. What we do begin to see is his this letter is written to seven particular churches in the first century world, and so these next seven weeks we'll be talking about these seven particular churches. Who were they? What do they look like? Why does it matter? And yet, each one is not written. The letter is not written to the church, right? It's written to the angel of the church. You're like, huh? Like You mean like floating angel like above? Well, not really, no. I don't mean that at all. Um, Here's what I would say. What if, what if the idea of the angel of the church, right? The idea of the angel of the church is probably not so much like it's a person or a thing, but it's the embodied spirit of the people. All right, so each church has its own angel because it has its own ethos, culture. It creates it by the collective whole of the being. It doesn't exist apart from it. So actually, I love this this kind of definition that Walter Wink gives. It's kind of helpful for us to think about the angel of the church, the spirit of church. Here's what he says. It would appear that the angel is something separate from the congregation but must somehow represent its totality. Through the angel, the community seems to step forth as a single collective entity or gestalt. But the fact that the angel is actually addressed suggests that it is more than a mere personification of the church, but the actual spirituality of the congregation as a single entity. The angel would then exist in, with, and under the material expressions of the church's life as its interiority, as the corporate personality or felt sense of the whole. The angel of the church would have no separate existence apart from the people. But the converse would be equally true. The people would have no unity apart from the angel. So the idea that every church has its own unique culture, that we would have an angel of our church, a spirit of our church as well. Be writing to the whole of who the people are. In fact, so we'd say it this way there are kind of six ways that I think Walter Wink gives are kind of helpful to say, well, how does, it, how does an angel get created? What creates this kind of spirit of a place and a people? And so he gives six things, and here are the six uh, architecture and ambience of a church, like the place and the people, economic and educational levels, power structures, leadership styles, theological orientations, and attitudes towards authority. How a congregation handles conflict, liturgy or corporate worship, and how spiritual growth is developed, perception of itself and its community, right? Just who the people are, the overflow of the people in all aspects of the local church. And so the question for you and I, as we look at these seven churches in particular, is what is the spirit of our church? Hypothetically, if Jesus were to reveal to us and write us a letter, what would he say to our church? What would be our temptations? What would be the areas where we would do really well and the areas where he'd have concern for us? And over and over again, what we find is we see this word conquer again and again in these letters. It's, in other words, conquer the things that are holding you captive, the things that are keeping you from being who God has called you to be. I love the words of I know there's a few more quotes today than normal, so sorry about that, but not sorry about that. So... Um, some people just write stuff better than I can say it, and so you'll hear it that way. So, here's what he writes. What do the letters emphasize the importance of conquering? Putting together all the references in the book, we get a clear answer. The main challenge the young churches face is the threat of pagan persecution. Indeed, these seven letters seem to be written as part of the Lord's preparation of these churches for worse to come. They are to conquer, not by fighting back, but by following Jesus himself, who won the victory through his own patient suffering. Some in these churches will suffer. Some will die. All must bear patient witness to Jesus, thereby conquering the evil forces that surround and threaten them. What we find all throughout the book of Revelation is we are at war with principalities and powers of darkness, not people. It's hard for us because you don't overcome principalities and powers by fighting them but through prayer, and through faithfulness. What might it look like for us to be that kind of people? And over and over again we hear this particular phrase to each of the letters, give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, will we listen with the ears of Christ or will we listen with our own ears? What will be the thing that shapes us when we hear the words of Christ? Will we receive life from him or will we find ourselves going, I don't really like that so much. I'm not getting in the boat. I'm not going to the other side. I really like Babylon or Rome or Canada or France or America or Mexico or wherever we live. I like the culture that we have more than I like Christ and his church. And this is the challenge. And so over and over again, we'll come back to this idea. Are we having ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches? It's so the first letters written to the church in Ephesus. All, right, all these seven churches were churches in Asia, mostly in Turkey. These seven churches were pivotal in the ancient world. Ephesus was a city of about 250,000 to 500,000 people. It was a a large city in the ancient world. In fact, it was a city of great commercial importance. It was a a place where trade routes ran through. It was a place where they had a major port and major roads, and they all met there, and it was like a cultural hub. But it also was a mess. There's some cool things about it, like they had the Pan-Ionian Games were just second to the Olympic Games. I mean, pretty cool, like athletic stuff. Awesome kind of thing. But also at the temple of Artemis or Diane, if you were Roman. And this temple was one of the ancient wonders of the world. In fact, I'm gonna read it because I can't remember ever off the top of my head. It was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, and 60 feet high. Massive temple. And this partico temple, it functioned not only as just as a place of worship it was a place of commerce. It functioned like a bank because it was safer, but it also was a place of asylum for criminals. You couldn't arrest people there. So, where do you think criminals would go? Temple of Artemis. In fact, what we find is it was one of the major centers in the Roman world of emperor cult worship. They worship Caesar. Why would you not worship Caesar, right? I mean, road safe, Mail gets delivered on time. There's the peace of Rome, maybe a false peace, but still peace. And so people began to find that this was where they would spend time. It was the most important city in this portion of Asia. In fact, it was known to be a city, though, that was so corrupt and so evil and so immoral and so fickle that it was known as the Las Vegas of its day, only more Immoral and unethical than anything we could probably begin to describe. And it's here that the Apostle Paul actually spent more time than any other church. But here's the crazy thing, right? If we're not careful, we're wooed by the culture over time. Today, there are no churches in Ephesus. Why? Because we're not careful. We don't have ears to hear. And the spirit of a church, the spirit of a place, becomes something that doesn't look like God's spirit, but something else. And so here is what John records that Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you do have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He begins talking about this idea that Christ is present in all these churches and these words, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And so the question is for this church, right, it's pretty clear what he's saying, like, hey, I appreciate You guys have been so faithful. That's amazing. That is a great thing. And so he commends them. He begins every letter in the same kind of way. He commends the church for who they are. And he says this, like, I know how hard you've worked. I know you've not put up with corrupt teaching or that kind of stuff. You're like, you don't do that. I, I so love that. You're faithful in that way. You preserve Christian orthodoxy. Christian orthodoxy, by the way, means right belief. All right, so we often talk about two different ways of thinking about this that are helpful. Orthodoxy, right belief, and orthopraxy, right practice. Right? These are important in the church. Right. We want to have both. We want to have orthodoxy, good belief, and good practice. We want to put into practice the things that are good belief. This matters in the church, and he's commending them for this. The problem we'll see in just a few moments is this, that they had the right belief, but at some point the right practice got lost. And they must go together, because if they're separate, they're destructive. Because it's this idea that Christ calls us to be whole, to be Remade in the image of Jesus. And so he does say the good thing, hey, you hate the practice of the negations, right? Who are these people, right? Well, they're the group in the first century that would exist in some of the churches and they basically believe that a Christian is freed so much so that you can do anything you want to do because you're freed from it all. Whatever you want to do, it's good because you're free. No laws pertain to you. Well, you can imagine where that would go, not in great places, right? So, that, so the sexual immorality that would happen in the temple of artemis or diane right will become a problem because i can participate in that because it's okay because i'm freed stuff sacrificed to idols pagan festivals i'm all in because i'm free they don't really matter it's fine i can do what i want so I'm trying to think well how would i say that to you and i today in the 21st century right um just not long ago, I'm going to leave out where and when, I was, I was having a conversation with someone, and they'd just been talking about their faith and growing, and then in the next sentence they said, yeah, i got to call an Uber for tonight, because we're going out tonight, and I know I'm not going to be able to drive later. And I'm like, well, at one level, I, I said I could I was going to choose to kind of give the gracious view, because my head initially, and I was like, well, that's, you know, they just want to make sure that they're not driving if they've had too much to drink. Good thing to do. but But also, if you're pre-planning, to drink so much that you are drunk. Nowhere in Scripture will you find anything other than drunkenness is sinful. They just talked about their faith two minutes earlier, and then said, "I got to get an Uber for tonight. I got to park my car there so I can." I'm like, ah. Like I didn't know them well, so I didn't say anything because it wasn't. I just didn't know them. First time we met was that night, right? This would be the practice of the Nicolaitans. Like I can do what I want. It's okay to do whatever I want because I've been freed. It's not even that what they were doing is wrong, but if we take stuff that we know is okay and make it excessive, it probably does become sinful. Not just alcohol, but anything we want to put there. It was just a conversation I had last week. And here's what he says to the church though about the bad. They lacked Christian love. He says, you forgot your first love. You know, it might be that they were so worried about some false teaching that they, they began to be really rigid in some stuff. And at one level, I can get behind that. I get that. That makes sense to me. Um, maybe it was apathy over time. They just forgot to love. You know, uh, we just, us four no more. We like these rules, this rigidity. This is how we're going to live. This is what we're going to do. Um, or I love the words of Scott Daniels as he says it this way. It's a spirit of boundary keeping. We've got to keep people in and certain things out. And so we're going to focus on these boundaries. We're going to live for the boundaries. Right? I love the story he tells about this. He was just out of college. He was speaking in an event at a camp for teenagers, right? And so he was like, first time doing this, kind of nervous. I can imagine, right? It's always nerve-wracking even to speak to you all. And I see most of you every week. But, but he shows up to speak, and he heard this great idea about, hey, if you'll just read like a children's book, you can kind of bring people in and then tie it into scripture, and teenagers will be engaged. And so he's like, all right, let's do that. And so um, the guy who wrote the book, like, I Love You Always, like, I think some of you moms like it, you know, you climb in the window. I, anyway, I don't remember the author's name, but, but the guy who wrote that book wrote another book about Thomas and his snowsuit. And Thomas in his snowsuit, the point is that Thomas doesn't want to change out of the snowsuit, and he keeps saying no, and he tells his mom no, and his teacher no, and the principal no, and everyone no, and they begin trying to rip this snowsuit off of him, and long story short, people's clothes are getting switched all around, and in the end, the principal is wearing, like, someone's dress, and who knows what other people are wearing, they're all wearing different clothes, right? Funny story. Just to make a joke, and every time Thomas would say no, and the students would say back no. As he's reading the book, a woman gets up, walks up on the platform, grabs the book from his hand. She goes, "I think we've heard enough," and she takes the book and she walks out. Scott's 22 years old. He goes, "I don't know what to do. I don't know what I did." And he says, "Well, seems like we should pray." He said, I don't know what I prayed, but I prayed, and I walked out, and I looked back, and there's the camp director and the woman talking angrily to one another in the back. And he said, I went over to try to apologize. Say, like, I don't, I'm not even sure what I did. I'm, I'm sorry. And she said, well, you don't need to be bringing that pornography and that filth into this camp. And he was like, children's book? About a kid's snowsuit. I didn't see that connection. But she was convinced her role was to keep the boundaries what was moral and immoral, and she was the boundary keeper, and so she was going to make sure others did that as well. If we're not careful, we'll function in the same way, about things that don't matter. What's the fix for the church, to the angel of the church? How could Ephesus have restored this? They're called to repent and remember. And what's the temptation if they don't? what's What's the thing that's going to happen to them? He so says, they'll remove the lampstand. In other words, the light of Christ will no longer be defined in that particular church. The light of Christ will be gone. No longer will they be the very presence of God. And so what do you and I do with this letter? What are you going to do with this particular church of Ephesus? What do we do with the temptation to be boundary keepers? All right, how do we become people who are comfortable living in the tension that exists? Because there is a tension between orthopraxy Orthodoxy. There is a tension between loving people and recognizing that there are things that are wrong. There's a tension that exists. How do we live into that tension? How do we have a more generous orthodoxy in certain areas? How do we make sure as a people that we're not keeping wrong boundaries? But how do we also make sure we are keeping boundaries? What are the things as a local church we need to think through over and over again? But like the church in Ephesus, following the law of God is great. But if we forget, we're called to love in the midst of being faithful. And this letter is definitely written to you and I. We're called to put love of God into practice by how we love others. Called to put love of God into practice by how we love others. I always love this story. I've used it before, and so some of you are going to hear it again, some of you for the first time. Some of you have probably fallen asleep in the past. And that's fine. Um, but it's really good, so hopefully you'll stay awake this time. But Tony Campolo tells this story. He says, if you live on the East Coast and travel to Hawaii, you know there's a time difference that makes 3 o'clock in the morning feel like 9. With that in mind, you'll understand that whenever I go out to our 50th state, I find myself wide awake long before dawn. Not only do I find myself up and ready to go while almost everybody else is still asleep. but I find that I want breakfast when almost everything on the island is still closed, which is why I was wandering up and down the streets of Honolulu at 3: 30 in the morning looking for a place to get something to eat. Up a side street, I found a little place that was still open. I went in, took a seat on one of the stools at the counter and waited to be served. This was one of those sleazy places that deserves the name Greasy Spoon. I mean, I did not even touch the menu. I was afraid that if I opened the thing, something gruesome would crawl out, but it was the only place I could find. The fat guy behind the counter came over and asked, what do you want? I told him, a cup of coffee and a donut. He poured a cup of coffee, wiped his grimy hand on his smudged apron, then grabbed a donut off the shelf behind him. I'm a realist. I know that in the back room of that restaurant, donuts are probably dropped on the floor and kicked around. But when everything is out front where I could see it, I really would have appreciated it if he had used a pair of tongs and placed a donut on some wax paper. As I sat there munching on my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open. And to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place, and they sat on either side of me. Their talk was loud and crude. I felt completely out of place and was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman sitting beside me say, Tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone. So what do you want from me? A birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? Come on said the woman next to me. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you that's all. Why do you have to put me down? I was just telling you it was my birthday. I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party my whole life. Why should I have one now? When I heard that, I made a decision. I sat and waited until the woman had left. Then I called over the fat guy behind the counter and I asked him, do they come in here every night? yeah he answered the one right next to me does she come here every night yeah he said that's Agnes she comes in here every night why do you want to know because I heard her say that tomorrow is her birthday I told him what do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night a smile slowly crossed his chubby face and he answered with measured delight that's great I like it that's a great idea Calling to his wife, who did the cooking in the back room, he shouted, hey, come out here. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow's Agnes' birthday. This guy wants us to go in with him and throw a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night. His wife came out of the back room all bright and smiling. She said, that's wonderful. You know Agnes is one of those people who's really nice and kind, and nobody ever does anything nice and kind for her. Look, I told them, If it's okay with you, I'll get back here tomorrow morning about 2.30 and decorate the place. I'll even get a birthday cake. No way, said Harry. That was his name. The birthday cake's my thing. I'll make the cake. At 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I had picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store, had made a sign on a big piece of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. I decorated the diner from one end to the other. I had that diner looking good. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by three fifteen, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall to wall prostitutes and me. <laughs> At three thirty on the dot, the door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes and her friend. I had everybody ready. After all, I was kind of the MC of the affair. And when they all came in, we all screamed, "Happy birthday!" Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. As she was led to one of the stools along the counter, we all sang happy birthday to her. As we came to the end of our singing, happy birthday dear Agnes, happy birthday to you. Her eyes moistened. Then when the birthday cake with all the candles lit on it was carried out, she lost it and just openly cried. Harry gruffly mumbled, "Blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm gonna have to blow out the candles." And after an endless few seconds, he did. Then he handed her a knife and told her, "Cut the cake, Agnes. Yo, Agnes. We all want some cake." Agnes looked down at the cake, then, without taking her eyes off of it, she slowly and softly spoke, "Harry, um, is it right with you? If I mean, is it okay if I..." Um, what I want to ask you is, is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? I mean, is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and answered, sure, it's okay. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. Take it home if you want to. Can I? She asked. And looking at me, she said, I live just down the street, a couple of doors. I want to take the cake home and show it to my mother, okay? I'll be right back, honest. She got off the stool, picked up the cake, And carrying it like it was the Holy Grail, walked slowly toward the door. As we all stood there motionless, she left. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, What do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner at Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning but it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over to the counter and said, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? In one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment and he answered, no, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join a church like that. I can't read that story ever without getting choked up a little bit every single time. Because I think if we're not careful, we can so easily become like the church in Ephesus. Ephesus. We can say the right things, we can even do the right things, but our heart is not in the right place. And if we're not careful, we'll hear the story of Tony Kimpo in Hawaii ministering to prostitutes, and we'll go, ooh, that's not dangerous. You know, what if someone told his wife? What if people heard about that? Instead of going, that's incredible that he would do that. If we're not careful, we'll have a spirit of boundary keeping. If we're not careful, we'll go, ah, our hearts are not in the right place. We can't offer love to people because you know, you know he should tell her what she's doing is not right? You know what, she probably already knows. What might happen if there really was a church? I long to be part of a church. Might throw birthday parties for people who have never had birthday parties. What if if we were part of a church? In moments when we feel like we can't be loving to people, we express love in ways that were tangible. And so this morning, I don't know where you are in your life. I don't know where you're in your spiritual journey. I don't know if you find yourself in a position where you're not loving well in some way, shape, or form, and you kind of know it. If maybe God's been tugging in an area of your life, you're going, man, you're kind of callous to these people. Or you've got too many of them out there, whoever they are. Or maybe you've just got this boundary you've put up, and you're not allowing God's spirit to kind of wedge its way in. this morning, when we pray to take communion, maybe today, that as you take that bread, as you dip it in that cup, someone says to you, this is the body of Christ. And the blood of Christ poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe you and I will confess whatever that might be. Maybe we'll say, God, I don't want a spirit of bounder keeping me to find me. I don't want, just because I have the right orthodoxy, the right belief, I, don't want, I want to have the right belief, but I want to live it out with the right practice. And so, Father, will you help me not only to believe rightly, but to live rightly. And so this warning to the church in Ephesus is the warning to the church here in Muskegon. We're reminded this morning that the words of John the Revelator to the church in the first century are the words to us. Not to worry, not to be afraid, not to, not to lose hope, but the one who conquered death and Hades is the one who has conquered that forever. You and I are invited into a relationship with him and we have hope for this moment and hope for all eternity. So we pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather in this space and this place at this time. We thank you for the way that your love and your mercy transcends all history, all moments, all of our past and all of our present. May you do a work in and through us and may we be your people who more and more define by your love. And may the spirit of this church be one that is defined by the very spirit of God. We pray this in Jesus' name.